Welcome to Authors Unedited, a podcast with Dominic Stevenson. So I am delighted to be back with Julie Galante. If you haven't listened to her episode on the Authors Unedited podcast, then Please do go back and listen first. Um, although we're not going to cover the same ground, we will cover some similar ground. Um, so you may want to get a bit wider context by listening to that first. But what we do is call out on social media for questions from our audience to try and get a bit deeper into what people actually want to know. Because part of what we try and do with that po- this podcast is inform you answer your questions about writing about authors and dig a little bit deeper than other people sometimes do and i am but one person so i can't read minds i don't know what you want to know so julie the first question from Alyssa on instagram and i'm sorry to start with this one because it's deep it's meaningful it's emotionally taxing is it the pizza line What's your favourite pizza topping? <laughs> I did see that. Um, I mean, that's the problem with tagging people into the posts know, on social yeah, media. Sorry, I, is I they did, then go I and look at all the a, questions. get a preview. Um, you know, short answer, mushroom. But that's the wrong answer. Because mushrooms are fundamentally evil. I mean, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. <sighs> My worst pizza in the world would be a mushroom coriander and prawn pizza. I mean, that sounds terrible. Yeah. yeah. But because of the coriander and prawn that you've added. Why would you put coriander on a pizza? That's. I don't know, but. Don't do that. No, but it's like when you go into a restaurant and they. It's like you're ordering a nice (laughs) meal and then they'll be like, fuck it. Here's some coriander and prawn. Let's put a load of coriander on top. Like, whoever says. Please put mud-tasting herbs on top of my food. But that's a genetic thing. Some people, like... Taste soap instead. Yeah, or... Yeah. Oh, but you taste mud? Yeah. Okay. It tastes I mean, really that's, earthy. And that's just weird. I'd rather chew tinfoil. And I've got a filling, so I know how much it hurts. So I don't have any filling, so people are like, oh, isn't it terrible to chew tinfoil? And I'm like, no, it's, it's fine. How... I mean, this should be an audience question, but... <laughs> Julie, how often do you chew tinfoil? <laughs> I don't, there was, it was just like one occasion where <laughs> we were, there was some like, oh, what were we eating? We were eating something off of tinfoil, like it was, but it was like some messy thing. So we were like, were we, can't, I can't even remember why, but, and then the friend that I was with was like, ah, oh God, it's so terrible when you chew the tinfoil. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, cause it hits your fillings. And I'm like. What, what does it's it do? Like, what does it do to the fillings? Do they like electrify each other? Like I have no idea. Cause yeah. I it is it's absolutely horrible. Like it's like no feeling I can imagine. I can't. And, well, I can't imagine. Like, no, but the thing is, even having done it, I can't recreate it in my mind. Do you have any tinfoil? Should we go? No, no, we shan't recreate it. Oh. In real life, all my mind, because then I would cry again. That's so weird. I can't. I have no idea. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I think we started off on two controversial I mean, points to get that, there. Yeah, that was that. a weird answer. Um, even for the pizza. Yes. Yeah, anyway. So, and on to Alyssa's second question. 
you're both a writer and an, and an artist, and we touched on this in the first one, but how do these two modes of expression influence each other in your work? Um, well, we did talk about like how I've kind of gone back and forth between them recently. Um, I think it's... I, I find it really interesting to see how similar the processes are. Like, the creative process is whether I'm creating art or writing, it's really similar. Like, you go through different stages of being excited and being inspired and feeling like everything you're doing is shit and everything that you're doing... And then you get like hopeful and you're like, oh, maybe there's something really good here. And then you think it's good, but then you put it out to other people and they're just like, it's terrible. And you're like, eh. and I mean, the process is just so similar, even though the outputs are very different and one's so verbal and one's so visual. Like it's, yeah, it's very fascinating to me. And just from mind trust, you started doing... Uh more sort of spoken word events and I know you've done the night that I run listen softly but do you find a similar nervousness about exhibiting your work in a gallery as you do stand in front of a crowd and sharing your your written work oh and it's so different like I I used to be so terrified of public speaking like it used to be one of those like, even though intellectually I knew there, it was fine, it was just something my body was just like, this is the worst mortal danger you could possibly be in. Do not do, you know, like, no. the worst thing you could do. Um, and I, just, I always thought that was a weird dichotomy. It's like, intellectually I know that public speaking is fine, but my body seems to think it's a terrible, terrible thing. And that kept me from, like, seeking out opportunities to public speak, right? Because it made me feel terrible, and so I very much um, never wanted to do that and then and then Scott died like which was kind of the worst thing I could imagine and like once you've lived through the worst thing you could possibly imagine that really resets your relationship with anxiety because what is anxiety anxiety is like fear of something bad yeah. um, you know something that your brain's imagining something terrible that could happen but if you would if you would ask me 10 years ago what's the worst thing that could happen I would have been like Scott dying um you know that would have been my consistent answer from like probably when we got married to him actually dying and and I've survived that so so you know so what's what's public speaking what's the worst thing that could happen like I don't have anything to say like I forget what I'm gonna say people hate me that's nothing compared to what I've been through Sorry, that sounded no, really no. serious, but no, it, no, no, it's no. meant to be like, you know, like, therefore a little nervousness about yeah. public speaking, like, doesn't feel that important, yeah. and that, that makes me, even though I feel the nervousness, I'm just yeah. like, yeah, so what, I'm just going to do it. I mean, to be honest, the pause was that I couldn't properly find a segue <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to, to, to go forward. To whatever's coming next, all right. Um, so imagine some gentle whistling, and then me looking down at my... At my notes but um so we have a question from claire um on instagram what was the single biggest benefit of doing your master's degree hmm. just like the dedication that it meant to writing you know i would that i was spending an entire year doing it spending a lot of money doing it 
um, effort. Yeah, like it, to do that, you know, it transforms, it transformed my relationship with writing. Like it took it from something that I was doing some of the time to something that at least for a year of my life, it was the main focus of my life. And it just, it felt, it felt amazing. I mean, it was just, it felt like such a privilege, such a luxury to be able to do that. And I learned so much. And I think my writing really improved that year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess the, I mean, not that like I've learned a lot in the courses and the workshops and the tutors were all amazing, but the most important thing was just kind of the shift in my relationship with reading. Nice. And so on to a question from Nick. And so although we didn't discuss in detail a lot of what you've written has been short stories and that's what you won the Janet Coates Black Prize for. And so do you have any tips for someone who can write longer things but can't necessarily write short stories? Because I know that I can pontificate until the cows come home. But if you ask me for under 3,000 words of wisdom, I would... Couldn't do it. No. Um, that's interesting, because I, I think especially because I kind of my recent history with writing, or my last 15 years history with writing was mostly blog posts, which are probably 300 to 500 words, so I'm quite familiar with short form. Um, so if you're struggling with it... I, I love a short story because you can just explore such a tiny facet of life. You can explore an idea or something in a really pure way and you don't have to look at all the complicating factors, right? Because like life is really complicated. So if you're trying to tell like a big story, if you're trying to write a biography or whatever, like there are just so many different things you could include, maybe you need to include, maybe you have to include. Like there's so many different angles you can approach things from, there's so many emotional levels there's so many points of view there's so many influencing factors and and all that stuff whereas with a short story you can just distill it down to one thing that you find interesting for whatever reason it could be like we talked about earlier like it could be an idea that you got from a piece of art or it could be a feeling you had or it could be a snippet of conversation you overheard on the bus and you can just explore that and i just love that attention that you get to do so i guess um if you're, yeah, so you're wanting to write something short, start with a really small idea, mm. and then and play with that. And even if it starts getting big, the editing process is really fun. Like when you're like, okay, so I've got all these ways I could take this idea. Let's just distill it down to one really interesting thing. I don't think know if that's advice. No, that's I what mean, I like about the short. Form. I mean, I totally think it is because when well, I've tried to write short stories and they have had a lead balloon based reception when I've shared them mm. because I, I try and caveat everything that instead of going deep on one thing for a short time, I go big with no detail right. for a short time. So I will tell a story of someone's week in 2,000 words 
instead of telling the story of one conversation in 2,000 words. Because right. I want to know where that conversation came from, what was said, why it was said, what was the aftermath. Well, you can know all those things for yourself. Yeah. And the trick of it, if you can, is to know all those things and get all that knowledge into something very distilled. And that, like, I'm not saying it's easy or that I do it well or at all, but just, like, the challenge of that, of, um, you know, if you read a really, really well-crafted short story, like one of the examples that, one of the examples that are, you know, that always gets used as Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants, I think it's called. It's really, really short, and it's just a conversation between two people, and it's um, so distilled, but it, there's so much, you get so much backstory, you get so much other stuff in it. Um, and that, you know, that to me, that's like high art, like being able to take a lot of meaning and a lot of story and a lot of stuff and communicating it really succinctly, like having one sentence that tells you a lot of backstory mm. without telling it to you directly, just because of the implied things and whatever so I, yeah I don't know it's it's a challenge worth worth trying because even if you don't end up writing short stories you'll learn to write better long stories yeah. by trying to distill an idea down and edit and edit and edit and get down to the the essential parts so. I think I'm just really bad at picking things out like I, I get annoyed in TV and films when the camera changes to someone who's just waking up mm. and um, my thinking is like they're always just waking up they're never just asleep or going to sleep they're always waking up and I know that's where the action is mm. but there's no context to they're just waking up like why did they go to sleep why did they go to sleep why were they asleep on the sofa why were they still fully dressed why was why is there a half empty glass of wine next to it? Do you know what I mean? All of those well, things. But if it's a well done shot, then those you'll know all that from the shot, right? No, no, I'm just. But like you know, I mean, you want to know all those things. Like, why are they asleep on the sofa? Why are they waking up here? Why are these things around them? If it's a well done shot, that will be part of the yeah. the shot. Which, yeah. No, I mean, like I, my my first. The point where I realised that I was, that I liked bigger tales was I was reading a book by, I mean, presumably it was ghostwritten, but by uh, Gary Lineker, the footballer. Uh, and he... I'm just going to nod politely as if I know No, he's fine, he's fine. <laughs> so, someone listening will know who Gary Lineker is. But he, um, he wrote a book and it was about a fictional footballer, presumably called like right. Larry Ginnicker. <laughs> I can't remember, but and yeah. who played for a team in Barcelona that I don't think was Barcelona. That wasn't Barca, it was like Parsa or Yeah, like <laughs> Barcelona Football Club. <laughs> nice. Um that played at like the old camp. I've been to a Barca game in Barcelona. Have you? I have. I haven't even been to a Barca game in Barcelona. I've just you know I thought you'd think I was cool if I told you that, and it's true. I I thought you're cool anyway, but mm. but no. But now I'm like ten percent cooler. Twenty. Twenty. All right. Yeah. 
I've also been to a St. Pauli game. Have you? Yeah. Oh. See, they are, I support a team called Sheffield Wednesday, and St. Pauli and managed by Sheffield Wednesday's old manager, uh, Josh Lunkai, who... I mean, the least said about his managerial record at Sheffield Wednesday, the better, but nevertheless... I'd never heard of Sheffield Wednesday until this week. Oh. Yeah, when you mentioned them. When we talked earlier <laughs> yeah, in the week. We, when we talked about yeah. them. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, no, sorry, but the, um, when Larry Ginnicker finished his book, um, <laughs> it basically finished on a bit of a, a cliffhanger, and it was then that I realised I can't cope with things that don't have context. Mm. And so like, I sort of think the Lord of the Rings is a little too vague. Like, <laughs> like that's, my, that's my look on the world, that right. maybe he could have done a bit more. Right. But, but yeah, no, sorry, I have hijacked. So, Neil on Instagram um, asks, is an artist, and I think we've covered this slightly, but is an artist or writer compelled to reflect on the world they live in, in their work? Um, compelled to, I mean, no, you don't have, I mean, yes and no, because the world that you live in influences everything you do. Even if you're writing about a completely different world, you can only have a completely different world in contrast to the world that you know. Yeah. Right? Like, Because everything is just, it's a contrast between what's normal and what's not normal. And everyone has a different normal, but that's, actually, especially in this short story, that's something you have to establish really early on. Like, you've got the world of the short story and it can be our world, right? It could be Stockbridge, Edinburgh in December, 2019, or it could be a different planet in a different time with non-human creatures in different technology and different everything. But whichever it is in the story, you have to establish what's normal for that world because you need to know you need that as context for what's happening because you need to know whether what's happening is a thing that happens all the time in that world or some of the time or Mm. if it's a really weird thing to happen in the world. Um, So yeah, so it's like it doesn't matter which world you're dealing with. You still have to... that The contrast is more important than the actual world. But yeah, but everything relates back to where, where where we are and live. And I think your answer sort of covers the second question from Neil, but is it possible to create a work that is purely beautiful and with no reference to the world? No, because nobody would understand it. You can only understand things in reference to other things, Hmm. right? I think. I mean, I agree to, I mean, 99%. But like we, um, the other night I was with Julie at a writing group event and there's a short story by um, someone else who was there who wrote this magnificent story about whales and it was just super beautiful. Like it was really, I mean, I compared it to listening to classical music and someone else compared it to a painting 
and it was just super beautiful and it all almost felt incidental that it was placed within the world and but i think you're right that everything as human beings we provide context to everything so it's impossible to create something that is purely beautiful Hmm, that's cute well i mean that's a different thing would you want to create something that's just purely beautiful that would be really boring like because beauty only exists in really to go back to the contrast like beauty only exists in a world where there's things that aren't beautiful yeah so you need that contrast otherwise you need that contrast in that context otherwise beauty is bland you can't have heaven without hell yeah basically yeah. That was quite a taxing question, Neil. So, uh, <laughs> thank you for Thanks, that. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> yeah, please do feel free to write in again. Um, and our last question, um, though I'm sure there'll be some tangents. And I'm dyslexic, so as I was copying this down, I believe I made some mistakes. So, if it's not the exact question, forgive me. Um, but this is from Ricky. As someone who works across multiple mediums, how do you feel about sharing your writing process? Is there an element of don't look at the artist behind the curtain about it? And should the work speak for itself? Yes. <laughs> and that's it from Julie Glanton. And we're done. No. So this is something I think about a, lot, about a lot because I think about a kind of artistic process and like when you put something out into the world and you as the creator, your relationship with the thing you created is a relationship, but it's totally independent of the relationship between the viewer of the, or the observer or the reader of the work and the work, right? So like, for example, my, I've done a lot of portraits and I do them in, you know, I have a very stylized way of doing portraits that's, um, Anyways, um, some, I do a portrait of a person and it has a certain meaning for me and a certain feeling. And when I'm painting the person, they have a certain mood or aspect to them. I have a certain mood or aspect. There's a certain mood or aspect that I'm trying to convey in the portrait. Those are all things that exist. But then I create the portrait and then the portrait goes out into the world and people see the portrait and people see so many different things in the exact same portrait, which to me, in I guess the period of time that I'm thinking of, I was creating portraits that I thought had very neutral facial expressions. Um, but the people observing them would read very passionately different things into these portraits. Like some people would say, oh my goodness, like, I so related to that portrait because I just saw the sadness in that person. Or I so related to that portrait because I saw the, you know, jubilance in their eyes. Or you know, but, And people kept saying these kind of things to me. And, and it was just so fascinating because they were all so different than my relationship to the portrait or, you know, what the sitter of the portrait was thinking or doing or, you know, any of the things that were going on in mm -hmm. the creation the relationship between the portrait and the person observing the portrait was so independent of what we were doing 
um, it was it was really fascinating. And at first it was weird because I'm like, am I being misinterpreted? But no, like it doesn't, in some ways it doesn't matter what I was trying to do. Just the fact that people are having a relationship with the portrait as observers, like that's amazing that there's something there. And if they're feeling an emotion and they're relating to the portrait, that's great. And it kind of doesn't matter what my relationship is to the portrait. It's interesting to look at that relationship in comparison to my relationship with it. But they don't have to be parallel. And that's kind of the beauty of making art. Like, it's just amazing. Like, you put something out in the world and then everyone makes it their own. And do you think that sense of people making it their own and not necessarily with your writing but I suppose with things you've read like do you think that's as applicable because I can remember Michael Stipe talking about uh, Everybody Hurts and he said that it's not our song anymore right that it's the song of everyone it's ever meant something to right and do you think that, and and I think because to consume a piece of literature takes so much longer than it takes to consume a four-minute song or a piece of art that's hanging on the wall, that as good as your art is, I wouldn't spend an hour a night for two weeks looking at one painting. Whereas that may be how long it takes me to read a book. Right. But you might look at a painting every day for a long time, say if you owned it and it hung on your wall. Um, and then even, like, you've got the reading of a book, but then you have the relationship that you have with the book after you've, you've read the book. Especially reading is really interesting to me because there's such a there's so much imagination and creation that happens in the reading process, right? Like that's a huge creation, right? Because there's the words on the page and then there's the reader, what the reader creates in their mind. And when, when a reader reads something, they create these characters in their mind, right? And what they look like, even no matter what's on the page, if the page gives you sparse details or some details or, or no physical details, still in your mind, you're creating that character. It's, reading is such an act of creation amazes me because that's you know then when like say a book's adapted to film some people will be really happy because that film will have created the characters in the way that certain readers created mm. them in their minds but other readers will create a completely different characters in their minds and they'll be very unhappy with the film because it will be in conflict with their relationship with the book and the story and the characters and I just think that's all just so fascinating there's just so much creative energy in that in the reading process even like how cool is that and on that do you have a book old or new that you could recommend to our listeners uh, of all the books I don't have mm. I don't know where this came from. It's not like my favorite book or Sorry. anything, but just 
maybe because of what I was just talking about, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote a book called Big Magic about the creative process. And um, she's the woman who wrote um, Eat, Pray, Love, which I was never a fan of. I never got on board with. I was just like, it seems so banal. I was not, that whole phenomenon was very uninteresting to me. But then I saw her TED talk at, in the aftermath of that, and in her and it was just about the creative process and who you are, your relationship to the art, and just her humility and her kind of deep understanding of like what she had created and her ability to separate herself from what she had created and understand that people's relationship to that was very different from her relationship to it, and. And even, like, in the talk, she was just like, I've probably peaked, right? Like, I'm never going to know that yeah. success again. But that's okay because I'm dedicated to the creative process. And and that just made me... I mean, I just have so much respect for her and her approach to creativity, right? And that she... It's not about her. It's not about her ego. It's about the work and, like, getting better and making something that's true and important um, and all that stuff. And so then kind of one of the books that she's put out since then was um, Big Magic, which is about the creative process and how it's hard. It's a struggle, right? Like creativity is, sometimes it comes easy and sometimes it's really difficult and it's challenging and we have all these different hangups about it and we feel like we're not entitled to do it and we don't allow ourselves the time to do it and we need deadlines or we're not going to do it or we need permission or we're not going to do it and all that stuff and she just the way that she approached that was really interesting to me so if someone's out there worrying about their own creative process that's a book I would recommend cool well thank you so much Julie and thank you to all those people who submitted questions um when this is released we will be uh just a week away from christmas and the holidays so on to wish you all a happy holidays however you choose to spend it celebrate or not celebrate i hope that santa may bring you something nice or that just having some time to yourself may be nice but thank you very much julie thank you this has been fun my, very, my very first podcast ever well you've got a lot to say so i'm sure it won't be last <laughs> Um, that, that was that sounded a little like mm, you've been no talking, no no you've been talking a lot no 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 Julie. that was that was very much meant as a very much meant as a compliment. <laughs> I've been trying to pin down this interview for for a while now, and our our calendars have never seemed to meet. So I was extremely pleased to get this opportunity, and um, yeah, it's just been fabulous hearing about your process, your experiences, and your hopes dreams advice so yeah again thank you all and follow us on instagram and twitter at au underscore pod like and review us if you like us or even if you don't constructive criticism is always welcome um and yeah thank you again and speak to you soon Some places feel like home, and that's why I love shopping at Golden Hair Books. They're a small independent bookshop in Stockbridge in Edinburgh, 
and I'm delighted that they're sponsoring this podcast. You can find out more at goldenhairbooks.com and you can visit them on St. Stephen Street in Edinburgh. I'd recommend it. Go and see Julie and the team. If you don't know what book you want, they will recommend one and I guarantee it will make your day. Thank you.